today on an all-new episode of the Engram Journey podcast. Hello. Who are you? Chadwick, sir. You're my tutor this time. Am I? Chadwick. Right, come on. Chadwick, you say? Yes, sir. Sit down. Read to know we're not alone. Do you think that is so? Well, I hadn't thought of it before like that, sir. No, nor did I. What's up, dog? Not much, dog. What's up with you? I'm here to pick up Casey, you know what I'm saying? What's your name, man? Sky P, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Well, I'm awake and I speak English, so yeah, I do know what you're saying. Hi. Bye. We're gonna go. Whoa, 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 whoa. Where do you think you're going? Would you please have a seat? Hey, those are cool tats, man. Oh, for real. Thank you, bro. You yeah. see the cobra? I mean, what is this one? Oh, this? Uh-huh. That's my credo. No regrets. Mm-hmm. You have no regrets? Dad? Nope. Like, not even a single letter? No, no. way. <laughs> not me. Well, I love him. I think he's great. Hey. Okay. I think he's a real winner, Casey. If I were you, I wouldn't use protection go to the right schools, you always try to do the right thing. Always make tax-deductible, charitable contributions. And what do you get? Nice kick to the scrote. You know, I always used to say, no regrets. Well, I always used to should have say, regret everything. The drunk who tags the bathroom stall the proud boy headed for his fall The list is long, as I recall Our orders said to love them all Hello friends, you're now listening to the Anagram Journey Podcast with Suzanne Stabile, the Anagram Godmother. You may have been introduced to Suzanne through her books, The Road Back to You, The Path Between Us, or maybe The Journey Toward Wholeness. I mention these because today's guest is Anagram 9, Jeff Crosby, who was instrumental in making those books a reality during his time at InterVarsity Press. Jeff is an organizational leader who has spent four decades working in the world of words and ideas through roles in bookselling, publishing, and now as president and CEO of a trade association of publishers. He served as the executive director of the Association of Logos Bookstores, a vice president at Ingram Book Company, and for many years in executive positions at IVP. Jeff is the husband to Cindy, the father of two and grandfather of six, and the author of Language of the Soul, Meeting God in the Longings of Our Hearts. Have you ever asked someone if they were at the last buffalo hunt? We'll talk about all three of our numbers, nine, two, and of course, i got to contribute as a seven. We're talking stubbornness, regret, and the spiritual practice of reading. You can find out more about Jeff at jeffreycrosby.net and you'll find that link in the show notes as well we're excited for another year on the journey with you and we wouldn't be able to do the podcast the workshops the cohorts etc without you and your help ltm is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry and your donations help us to keep workshops and resources affordable as well as fund scholarships for the cohort program for teaching events and maintenance and upkeep of our home base the mica center in dallas you can find a link to contribute in the show notes. 
And, of course, please visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com and theanagramjourney.com. Now, let's get to today's episode. Please uh, give him a hug for me, okay? I will for sure do that. How's Cindy? She's okay. She's downstairs right now. Um, About an hour, she'll be leaving to go pick up the grandkids. That's uh, part of the rhythm of her day is picking up from school the two nearby grands, and uh, she loves that. They didn't need to be picked up yesterday, and she was somewhat adrift because <laughs> what do I do? So used, so used to uh, to getting them. So, but she's doing well. She's doing a lot of speaking, um, a lot of teaching. Has a new program December first. She's really looking forward to on. Uh, she's calling it Bison Tales and Prairie Trails. So it's it's um, on the intro- the reintroduction of bison back onto the northern Illinois prairie landscape. And uh, if you saw the Ken Burns documentary on the American buffalo, it, I mean, it, it's going to, and we didn't know that was being made when she scheduled this, but uh, it's going to, I think, tie into that really super well. So, Oh, nice. It's, it's doing good. Good. Have you uh, ever heard me tell the story that my dad was at the last buffalo hunt on the Charlie Goodnight Ranch? No. My mom and dad were down here visiting, and uh, my dad and I were running an errand, and um, it was, I don't know, maybe early, early 1980s, I guess. And um, I was the assistant athletic director at the University of Dallas, and I had an opportunity to audit a course that a guy taught who was just a really great Texas history uh, instructor, and I just wanted to hear him. And so I went when I could go to that class and just listened. So I said to my dad, I had the best time this week hearing about the last buffalo hunt. And he said, oh, I was there. And I said, what what do you mean you were there? And they had just moved in a covered wagon uh, uh, from uh, old Hagensport, Texas, to the Panhandle. And some neighbors were going to the last buffalo hunt. And what they did is they were in Model A's and Model T's. And they circled at the bottom of the canyon. And people brought picnics. And my dad was 11. And they watched the last buffalo hunt. And he said it was mesmerizing. That's amazing. I said, well, why did you never tell me that? And he said, well, you didn't ask. And I said... People people don't ask other people if they were at the last Buffalo hunt. <laughs> I saw the Rangers win the World Series. Yeah, you did. Y- yeah, you did. Joel's so excited about the Rangers winning the World Series. He works it in to every it conversation. Works in. Oh, like, it I does. Don't, I don't do any work to make that happen. It just comes up naturally like it just did. <laughs> well, it actually didn't, but okay. Well, I got to I got to say, you know, our office is in Phoenix, so all of the other staff were rooting for the Diamondbacks, but I was sort of quietly rooting for for Texas. I really like Bruce Bochy and the um, the former Dodger who was the key, you know, who won the MVP. Yeah. Um, we we Cindy is a rabid lifelong Dodger fan, so we we kind of like the team because of him. Oh, I tell yeah. you, if 
if somebody doesn't like Bochi, it's because they don't have enough integrity themselves. <laughs> that guy's awesome. He is awesome. He is. I love the photo of him that circulated on social media on the plane back with the the World Series trophy strapped into the seat next to him. Oh, yeah. Now that we've worked that into the conversation, all right, just naturally fit, and we've done that. So the last thing I want to tell you on our friendship level, I mean, all the rest will be friendship too, but we're about to get two new grandchildren. Are you? Yeah. BJ and his husband, Devin, are uh, adopting out of the foster care system. And they've been at it for a year. And they, the two little boys are coming home with them on Sunday. Well, congratulations. Thank you. It's been really, really hard journey for them. The system's a mess and all the things. In the end, they ended up with a seven-year and a four-year-old, seven-year-old and a four-year-old, and they're just kids. They don't, they aren't on meds. They have some trauma, but they've both been in therapy for a while, and they're going to just do great. Good. How many does that make for you now? Eleven. Eleven. All right. You've almost doubled me. Well, we're done. <laughs> we, we won't. We <laughs> I will think not we are more. too. But... <laughs> That's um, great. Yeah. Well, a lot of what I want to talk about with you is the aha that I've had in rereading the language of the soul fourth time, I think. And in your new position and thinking about you in your old position and thinking about how you look at life. It has awakened me to the fact that if you know someone well and if you're mindful orientation to time will show itself over and over and in fours fives and nines the reality that the orientation to time is the past is a little bit tricky because most people other than those three numbers want to talk about the present or the future Interesting. And you are, you know, when I teach the Enneagram to new people, I say, when I talk about orientation to time, I say, it's the orientation that you're tethered to. And you are so tethered to the past. Uh, That's an interesting observation. I do not disagree with it, but I can't say that anyone has ever told me that before. It's, um, I think there's, there's long been an awareness of a love of history, which of course is the past. Um, but your particular appropriation of, of that tethering is new to me, but that right out of the gate gives me a lot to mull over. Well, you like music from the past. If you think through Jeff Crosby, you, you your orientation to things and where you're tethered is the past. Can we... Can we think through Jeff Crosby a little bit together? So for the people that are listening to the podcast, yeah. who are like, who is Jeff Crosby? Yeah. Why is he talking to Suzanne on the Enneagram Training Podcast? Yeah. And kind of answer some of those questions. Jeff Crosby is the reason that I uh, have three books published. Period. And uh, he taught me all of the important things about being an author as the publisher of IVP, InterVarsity Press. And they had very little to do with writing and a great deal to do with 
integrity and how to be in the world. And uh, he, as a nine, doesn't receive and hold compliments like that well. (laughs) And so, like other people, he says to me, you're so sweet. And you know what? If you think that over, I'm really not. (laughs) I'm kind. I've told people you're not sweet. Yeah, (laughs) I'm just not. (laughs) I'm not that. And you are, as, as far as I'm concerned, walking wisdom about the power and influence that books can have in people's lives and the way to do that without getting caught up in things that would cost you your integrity as an author. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I will say, Suzanne, I think that those three books would have they would have eventually been written and published without me. I think they were, they were deep uh, within your your being, and they would have, they would have found light. But I do think back on those days with gratitude that that I had uh, something to do with what has happened with all of them. So thank you. We had a a really great lunch, uh, our first meal that we shared together at a barbecue place here in Dallas. The barbecue place is gone. Was that Cisco Grill or what was that? Uh, well, Cisco Grill is there in the same shopping center, but we went to the barbecue place, okay. which was Peggy Sue's. That's right. And I had a story, and you listened like a nine who sees two sides to things. So I want to ask you some questions now. And sure. Uh, one question is, are how aware are you of that reality that you can't see one thing without seeing another side? And how does it help you? And how is it a hindrance? The image that I have carried, as long as I can remember, uh, of myself is um, being a bridge builder. Uh, in fact, the website I built when the language of the soul came out um, I intentionally chose images of bridges. Uh, And um, I think it was in the process of building that and and finding those images that I I really uh, very concretely, more deeply than ever before, uh, realized what you're talking about. The um, not just ability, but it's almost like uh, it's... um, I can't not see uh, multiple perspectives. And I think it goes back to um, my bookselling days. Uh, right near Peggy Sue's Barbecue, there was a bookstore. And it's still there, too, called Logos Bookstore in Snyder Plaza. And that's where I cut my teeth in this world of books, uh, not at the Dallas location, but my wife and I owned a bookstore uh, in Bloomington, Indiana. And what we tried to do and what that store in Snyder Plaza, Dallas, tries to do is build a bridge to uh, to the public. Uh, the front of the store looks a lot different. The further back you get, the more theological, if you will, uh, or overtly spiritual the books become. And that was true of our bookstore. And so I think that the idea of building a bridge um, is rooted at least that far back in the 1980s and, and probably is rooted in my family of origin where there was there was a fair amount of trauma 
And there was a earnest desire on my part to try to understand um, multiple points of view of what was going on, what was reality in that place. So, so yeah, I, I'm pretty aware of being a bridge, um, pretty aware of, of uh, seeing multiple perspectives. And I think that, um, you know, there is some cost to that. Uh, I think for me, the cost is uh, often being misunderstood or at least feeling like I'm misunderstood, um, particularly in these very divisive days that we're we're in right now. There there can be a, a a message coming back from some quarters that you're you're lukewarm. You know you're mm-hmm. you need to be more definitive. You need to you know hold your ground and things like that. But I think those costs um, are are well offset by um, the gift of seeing other people. Uh, I'm reading David Brooks' book, How to Know a Person, right now, and it's just brilliant. And really, everything he's doing is sort of reinforcing this idea that I've long carried about the deep need of others to be seen and to be known, and my own deep need to be seen and known in a nine sort of way. You're right. I don't hold compliments very well, but I do hold friendships um, deeply uh, and for a long period of time. So I hopefully that uh, that gives you some sense of what I'm aware of, but uh, I, I don't know that I necessarily knew that day in Peggy's uh, Peggy Sue's barbecue, what was going on, but I'm glad that you remember. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was a it was a life changing day for me. Okay. Because you're you. Well, mm-hmm. and because you're you. The one of the things that I've picked up a lot on lately and listening to you talk about twos is if the thread is relationship, no matter the time orientation to time or the whatever, if the thread is about relationship, you remember it. It's a big thing for you. This is not a good example. There are other days where important things happened that didn't involve relationship. I imagine that you don't remember these other very important things, but there was not a personal relationship thread for you. And so Mm -hmm. therefore it doesn't hold the space that this meal at Peggy Sue's held. Is that probably true? Well, absolutely, and I think it's sweet that you say you're imagining when you have to work with me all the time, so you know it's happening. When it's, it's relationship. <laughs> I love one of the things you said there. Um, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but you talked about the consequence of bridge building. I think we talk about, and the Enneagram talks a lot about how nines have that gift of bridge building, but not a lot goes into talking about the consequences of being that bridge. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate more on that? Yeah. Um, well, I alluded to a couple of things, you know, the the being misunderstood and and even in some uh cases in in Christian circles or, you know, a more conservative spaces, the you know, the the charge of being soft or being wishy-washy or or uh needing to come down more definitively. I think that uh, to go a little further, Joel, that there have been times uh, where I've kind of felt like I didn't have a home, 
I think that's part of why the first chapter in the book, The Language of the Soul, is a longing for home. And it's it's more than just uh, like a house. It's more than a town. It's the longing for home was much deeper. And I that was the first chapter I wrote. And I think one of the reasons I tackled that um, first, and, and it's probably my favorite in the book, is is this sense that I, I carry um, a little too often of, of not being at home in the world. And, and I think that is in part um, this uh, bridge building motif that I, at least I assign to myself, whether it's accurate or not. Um, that uh, neither that nor that, you know, it's I'm I'm something I'm something different, and and that's where the misunderstanding sometimes comes in. But I think there's also gifts in that bridge building. I think that in this time and space that we're in, I think a lot of people in David Brooks is is illuminating this in such a profound way. Um, there there are people who desire to be heard. Who desire to be understood, um, who who desire to be listened to, and and to be to have their experience of the world validated, and so it, I think the bridge building that I've tried to do in publishing and my work now as the head of a trade association that brings together fairly disparate voices within the publishing community, I. I think the the gifts and the benefits of that are are wildly off you know offset any of the downsides that I've experienced. You talk about at different times in history, certain yeah. anagram numbers are called upon that we need the gifts that they have on board. Is it true that when that time is called for, that it's also hardest for them? like the the risk is greater. Mm-hmm. So you've said now since kind of the pandemic started and in different levels it's over and different levels it's not, like we're still... Sure. I mean, the effect that it's having on us is minute by minute still. Um, but that you've been saying since 2020, you know, that the time for sixes and nines is now. We need sixes and nines. The consequence of stepping up would be most difficult for sixes and nines. Right. Do you feel that way? I've been saying, Jeff, that um, the the people who are least likely to speak loudly right now are sixes and nines, and that those are the two numbers that we need because nines see at least two sides to everything, and because sixes are the number that's most concerned about the common good. And those two things we're losing. Mm-hmm. And the duality that is everywhere is beyond what I feel like as a two or what I think as a two, I have big answers for. I have some little answers, but I don't have big answers. So um, a, a way we could perhaps talk about it in terms of today is I've asked Joe, uh, every, everybody knows that Joe's a nine. I've asked Joe every day for at least five days, where is the moral right in what's happening in the Middle East? And mm. he gives me a nine response, mm. which is both places. Is there a culture, I always like to say, you know, in our culture as, mm-hmm. you know, Americans, first of all, and then there's so many different layers of culture. But is there a culture out there where 
non-duality is appreciated because the I feel like everything I hear is like what what side are you on? Yeah, whose like, side are you on? Yeah, yeah. And you, you this was with the conversation with Anagram Five, um, so a different gift, but same vein of gifts mm-hmm. recently. And you talked about how um, being being neutral, yeah, is not valued. No, in, in our no. And with nines, you say that your Enneagram teaching is that nines aren't neutral. Like they have a preference, a, a preference. However, they can see both sides. Yeah. So it's that same deal. And like, so therefore, all right, we need nines the most to step up right now. Right. And guess what? You've got the most to lose by stepping up. That's right. That's right. So all that to say, I'm going to be quiet now for a long time <laughs> is I'm so sorry. To, it's so good because this is the conversation we're having. And I, I think that, the stance of how can we learn from you for right now? And then I'm going to, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to tether you to the past again in a little bit, but for right now, duality is everywhere. Mm -hmm. Is that exhausting for you? Is it interesting for you? Are there places where you've resolved the duality for how you think? Are there places where you feel like you have to risk saying that you actually have resolved this difference between two or three or five things? I know yeah. these are really big questions, so we're both going to be quiet now. We're, we're in the deep part of the, I love when you were talking about the bookstore a minute ago, that like the further you went into the bookstore, the deeper theologically you got. We're yeah. going to the back of the bookstore yeah. in this conversation that's now. What, that's where we are. Yeah, I mean, literally in, in our store, unlike the the Snyder Plaza Dallas store, it, it was a dog leg. It was the shape of an L. So you go in the front, and you had jazz music and classical music, and posters of you know different parts of the world, and and greeting cards, and and gift books, and books about Indiana University basketball, and things like that. And then you make the left hand turn at the dog leg, and the the category on the back wall was knowing God. Um, you know, so there was a, there was a big shift from the end of the end of the front to the, the beginning of the dog leg. So, and it was all intentional. We, we spoke of building bridges to the community. So the front of the store was literally constructed, um, to be invitational. And this was an association of logos bookstores at its peak. There were 83, I believe 83. And most of them were at um, uh, in university towns, like, like your store is near SMU. Mine was near Indiana university. Hook them with, um, hook them with Hoosiers basketball. And then, then, <laughs> then, who's then, then ask him. Well, you're talking is. to a guy from Bloomington, Indiana. So you gotta, you gotta work in basketball, <laughs> but into this conversation, you have both you've, you've, uh, I mean, you've spoken of Gaza and you've spoke, spoken of duality and, I mean, you're you're really going for the big, big pictures here, and you're, you know, you're talking to this um, to this guy who, you know, I I kind of just strip it, I strip it down. I I think that part of, part of my exercise of writing, um, and and of reading, is is to to try to strip these these what seem to be just unsolvable conundrums, unsolvable issues. I read and I write to try to boil down. Okay. I can't do that. I can do this. Um, 
So a check, you know, to friends at World Relief marked for Gaza at the moment, that is something I can do in the midst of the duality that has, has erupted since October 7th, 2023, you know, when the tragedy there began, um, I just try to, I try to, um, you know, boil a lot of my thinking, my reading, my writing, my work down to um, kind of essentialist thinking. I don't, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I, I was just uh, last Friday, I was at a concert with one of my favorite musicians. His name is Bruce Coburn. He's he's from originally from Canada, probably recorded 30 or 40 albums. And, and his, his music uh, brought the Christian faith to me before I ever read Christian books. And I had an opportunity to go see him on Friday night for like the fourth time, a little uh, theater, a, a little folk school in Chicago. There were only three of three hundred of us in the room, so I, I mean, I was so close to the stage that you know he was spitting on me <laughs> as he sang, and it was like forty years of marriage, forty years of of my history, forty years of my involvement with the church was embodied in this one artist with acoustic guitars and a dulcimer on a stage, and he, he went. He had songs from the very first album and and the and the current album called O Sun O Moon. I'm going to get back to your question, Joel. Um, but the um, it, it was like this film was being played, or this audio clip of of my marriage and of my life, of my spirituality, where he he went through um, all of his phases. Like he he had a a mystical phase he had a um he had an evangelical christian um you know phase of you know jesus was coming back and can i go with you and things like that and then he had a deeply political phase and um and on and on to where today he's kind of back almost to where it was in the beginning with very simple christocentric mm -hmm. Uh, messages about the essentials of, you know, of forgiveness, the essentials of of love. Um, one of his newest songs is called Orders, and he, the refrain says, as far as I recall, our orders were to love them all. And so that musician, that musician and that experience in the Chicago Old Town Folk School of Music is, was sort of like, okay, that I identify with that. Yeah. So is it is it difficult to step up? Uh, yes. But I do think that there's there's some sense of calling um, for me to to kind of stand in these spaces. And I think the work that I am doing post intervarsity press is a part of that. Gathering together publishers from across uh, spectrums and, you know, being of encouragement and, and uh, equipping them and, and, um, you know, being, being a partner in conversation with them and, and pulling together events that help, help them accomplish their mission and so forth. So um, it's difficult, but I think it would be harder to not do it. But the big, big questions of, 
you know, that we're raised in terms of the Middle East right now and things like that. I just have to boil it down to I can't do that. I can do this. So I must. And that's that's what I try to do. You're a nine. One big reason is because you are so much like Joe. The person I know the best in the world. I'll take that as a compliment, Suzanne. It is meant to be. Joe's way of feeding himself has historically been being alone, horseback riding, and working out all the things that are taking energy from him by doing that. And nature has fed him well. You tend, with music and reading, to rest, but continue to explore like nines are often explorers they just explore different things Mm. and it feeds them to find a a morsel on the journey where they're exploring and the difference in nines and twos in this instance is twos are so tethered to the present moment for them to be fed by reading it has to be relational then they can discipline i have disciplined myself to read things that are books that are not about people so that i can grow in stature and wisdom and do the things that i want to do professionally but given a vacation and an opportunity to read i would just read about people Hmm. And when I get caught in a dilemma like we're faced with now in terms of the Middle East and all that's going on in the questions that are just too big, they're too big. Right. I'm focused on individual stories about individual people. And when you use the bridge building image, the thing that I kept thinking about is a line that I've heard for a long, long time And it is, it's great to be a bridge builder, but be aware you will be walked on from both sides. Mm -hmm. And so it is then uh, mystical to me that nines who hate conflict are indeed bridge builders. Because you risk the thing that you most want to avoid, which is conflict, in order to do the things that you think you're called to do. Yep. That rings true. Yeah. One of my favorite things that I've learned from a conversation over the past, I don't know, 12 to 18 months, your conversation with Teresa McBean, you talked about as far as building community that you get distracted by the individual and she does not get distracted by the individual. It is the, the group as a whole, the community as a whole, and you though, like you just explained there. Yeah. So I just wanted to reference that. Love that. And I think it's in Suzanne's books and the the teaching that I've heard her do in Nashville and Dallas. um, And just when we're together at Peggy Sue's barbecue, it's the, the, what I recall of the twos of uh, a need to be loved, Mm -hmm. which I, I know, I believe is universal, but there's something peculiar or, or deeper. Um, and at least what my wife and uh, a counselor have told me about 
not necessarily being all that great at tending to my own needs. Uh, so being a helper toward others, but but perhaps not uh, either being mindful of or even acknowledging um, my own needs. So I think those are the things that I carry with me from reading and listening about twos that make me wonder. Um, other descriptions that Suzanne has had about, you know, warmth and, and caring and things like that. I mean, those sound like you're patting yourself on the back, but I, I think that is true. And um, so all of that has made me wonder, but, but I keep coming back around to nine. And Suzanne has told me now at least twice, if not three times, that uh, that uh, I can just I can solve this and just accept that it's a nine. But if it's not the one, it's the if it's not the nine, it's the two in my book. Man, two things you brought up there that I I've never thought of before. And I'll be curious if this is y'all's experience. Because all right, you talked about two, you know, the desire to be loved, the need to be loved confuse that with what you say is is universal of we all want every human being wants to belong and our lives to have meaning. Yeah. We can confuse need to be loved with those two things. Yes, easily. And then the self-forgetting of nines mm -hmm. compared to the pride of twos. Mm -hmm. That's it. And how that can be confused. And I've never heard you talk about that. Yeah. Well, you're about and to, that's and that's what I heard. That's what I heard Jeff say there with his wisdom. Yeah, you're about to hear me talk about it. So, um, self forgetting is being aware of your needs, but not thinking that they're important enough or that you're important enough to meet them. Twos don't know what they need. So, if anybody at any time says to me, particularly Joe or the children, "What do you need?" I know they would give it to me if I could name it, but I can't. Most okay. of the time I can't. And it's risky for a nine to say what they want or need because they don't want that to cause conflict. So they're risking something, but they know. I don't know. And so pride is the inability or unwillingness to acknowledge one's own needs and suffering while tending to the needs of someone else. You could rewrite that for nines and in in a way say, nines are aware of what somebody else needs and, and they give it, but they don't always want to. They give it the motivation for doing the thing for the other person instead of themselves is to avoid conflict. And okay. so we keep saying to nines, do you want to be here? Like, do you want to do this right now? And what do you want? Yeah. Not, what? not do you want to do this? Like, what is it that you want? Yeah. It's the same. It's the same. You know, asking you, asking you and the reverend in unhealthy times. Yeah. What y'all want that there, there's not an answer coming back. Right. Right. And we are both right this minute uh, in real time. We are both so tired that we're looking at each other saying, if if the holiday time doesn't fix this, we have to take a, a big break. So it's not a good combination for <laughs> all the things that you just talked about. So Jeff, no, where you can park, where you can park it 
is your orientation of time is the past. That's helpful. And the distinctions between the 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 not knowing and not tending uh, to the needs is very, very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. One of the things that I had ready to go uh, as a question, because it came up with my, uh, now here's where I get to do a shout out to my Monday group, which is now a Tuesday group. Because <laughs> um, we talked about it some this morning. But they, we were talking about sevens and nines and the similarity there. Okay, well, and, you two are going to have to take that. And I said, I was like, guess what, friends? We're in luck. I'm, we're about to interview this afternoon, uh, have an interview with a nine. And so I'll ask. The material, the questions came from a very, very good Enneagram book. I don't have it in front of me. I'd probably reference it if I did. But uh, but it was this list of questions about um, like shadow side and childhood wounding and stuff like that. What I shared with my group was... The two misdiagnoses, is that mm-hmm. the plural? Mm-hmm. For potential misdiagnoses for children who are sevens and nines are for sevens um, ADHD mm-hmm. and for nines ADD. Right. Potentially. There are kids out there that actually have ADHD and ADD. Sure. This is not a, we're not taking on the system. And I talked about, I was like, you know, and I think it comes down to, I think there's oftentimes that sevens and nines aren't doing what they need to be doing. I'd love to hear the two of you talk about that. Well, I, I'll talk about it. And I'm saying, I'm so sorry, Jeff, if you're like, man, I didn't, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, well, I'm going to say, isn't great uh, about me as a seven doing what I need to be doing at that moment is hard. Like that is, I talk often about how much of a child I, I feel like I am. And part of that is, Hey man, you need to be doing this right now. You need to be doing this right now. This needs to be done right now. Mm-hmm. And then the um, sometimes struggle and sometimes easier days of, all right, but it's always conscious. It's never, I just do what needs to be done in the moment. Intuitively. Yep. Yep. I always have to consciously make that choice. And then we would talk about nines with, being repressed in doing, yeah. but also dominant in doing, yep. that it seems like that's where that fits as well. What do you think, Jeff? Oh, well, I need to go back and read about sevens, Joel, and, and learn more <laughs> about uh, your experience in the world. I, you know, I think in terms of the the doing question, I, I gain great pleasure from accomplishing things. I don't keep like a list that I'm constantly checking, checking off and congratulating myself for getting that done. It's mostly in my head. Um, and I, I certainly don't stack lists with things I've already done so that I make myself think, <laughs> you know, oh, you've done a lot more today than you. But there is the sense in which some of the hardest things I keep waiting on. I, I think because they they have the potential of bringing conflict or bringing me into if not with another person just in my own in my own spirit um you know kind of stirring things up and disturbing the peace if you will and so i i delay i uh you know procrastinate uh i i don't think most people would use that label but i know myself that on some of the biggest and hardest things that I I keep letting other things root in front of it because it's going to be hard. It's it's going to um, 
put me in the crosshairs of another person or of an idea. Um, just had a situation at work where uh, I knew it was going to be, uh, you know, it was kind of a question of identity. You know, who is this organization? Who who belongs and who doesn't? And I I knew that it was going to to bring about very, very strong emotion and opinion. And man, it went on through the whole summer. Like just let's 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 just delay this. Let's delay that. Let's we finally got to the finish line and I'm I'm super grateful for where we got. But I don't think it was merely me being more analytical and you know taking my time to try to get ducks in a row. I, I think it was me being afraid of what that conversation was going to feel like and what what other people were going to think of me you know um it sounds so childish to say that all right we're, we're just finding all the similarities <laughs> <laughs> and that's what i don't know if you remember me talking to you about it before we got on before we got online yeah and before we looked at calendar and did some other work yeah. but that word when I brought up the question that you did, it, the conflict, the avoidance of conflict, that mm -hmm. seven to nines yeah. for completely different motivations. That's right. But both are like, I don't. Don't want conflict. Yeah. No. What, what I told the group was like, when I deal with conflict, I do it because screw you. <laughs> like, it's not because I want to. It's like, if, if, if we're doing this, I'm not. I I'm, am. I'm a seven. Yeah. And it's like. And I'm, I am aggressive. And I, yeah. And. Jeff is not right. That's, That's just the, the motivation yeah, is exactly totally different, but it, but they're both um, just right there of the avoidance of conflict. It's in, it's in that range for me of, of, I don't want to do that. Well, let me tell you another way that I think you're the same. See, see what you say to this. Uh, similar. I should have said instead of the same. Um, we took your oldest sister to the airport yesterday and, uh, we have a grandchild, Jeff, who is a seven on the Enneagram. And he belongs to Joey. And Joey, as his parent, and Dad and I as your parents, talked about the fact that when sevens are being confronted or when you're trying to get them to do something or respond to something, they absolutely shut down. And they just, it's like they don't even see you. They just stand there in silence or sit there in silence until you're finished. And then they move on. And nines do exactly the same thing. I don't know if Josephine is a seven or not. We've talked that. Man. She's, she's five and she's something, Jeff. She's got to be. She is so aggressive. And she has been since the first time she made noise. So let's start with that. We, Whitney and I were there holding this quiet little baby. And we're just so happy. Like, oh, my gosh. Imagine if she's like, like a nine or just this. A little pe little peaceful like child baby. And then soon she is like, let me clear this up for you. I am not this. Yeah. I think it was a week or two ago. I'm getting on to her. I'm working on being more stern with this kid just because I'm like, I feel, you know, I learned a long time not to, uh, not to say things you're not going to do. Yeah. I learned that before. Like when the first kid was in their first couple of right. years, I was like, don't say things you're not going to do. So I learned from that kind of with sevens, how sevens will, um, when they don't know anything, just say, yeah, yeah, I'll be there. And yes. then just not come. Yeah. And then we learn to say, Hey, we might come. We might not come, but people equally hate that. Well, <laughs> as a parent, 
it's, you know, equally not working to not commit to any sort of consequence. Right. But nines, nines do the same thing. They don't say we might come, we might not come. They do that nod thing, and you think they're coming, and they haven't decided if they're coming. <laughs> they never told you they're coming. That's true, right, Jeff Crosby? Yep, yep. yep. What are you, and, so I know what you're thinking. I want to get back to you. Uh, what are you thinking when that's going on? When, when, when people want a definitive answer from you, what are you thinking? Well, I think part of what I'm thinking is um, what what's the downside of whichever way I, you know, Whichever way I answer your question, um, you know, what are the implications of that? Um, I do think, though, there is also when when I am delaying an answer, there is a desire to get it right. You know, there is a desire to there is a desire to be as certain as I can be, uh, recognizing the, the mystery and the vagaries of life. But I think I think there is also just that calculation of. Yeah, who is the person I'm talking to? Um, you know, what's the reaction going to be, regardless? You know, if I go down that way of answering or that way of answering, what's what's the downside? What's the reaction? What's the management of pain and conflict that I'm going to have to be about in that moment? Are those, Does that make sense? Yes. Are those words that fit you? No, 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 no. Right. My answer is, if you need an answer right now then if you have to have an answer, then use no as the answer. <laughs> and if, if you don't have to have an answer right now, then the answer is maybe. Yeah. And I will let you know as soon as I concretely I know. I know you'll know. Uh, but yeah, and that, that I've leaned into that, which again is not super helpful in relationship. So with little Josie Sue, she a couple weeks ago or whenever it was, I had to look at her and Whitney called me out about it afterwards. I look at her, I was like, because she's smiling at me while I'm getting on to her. <laughs> and I'm telling you, we talked about how, you know, Joey got, you know what she needed? She needed a four for a child to grow. Yeah. And, huh? mm-hmm. and then I think I got that in one kid and needed that. Yeah. And I didn't think that, and maybe she's not a seven, maybe she is whatever. But either way, I didn't think I needed a seven to child. For to me teach to, you about you? For me to see yeah. it and how awful it is. But I, so this time, two weeks ago. I say, hey, she's smiling. I'm like, this is not funny. I am not joking. You are in trouble. We need to talk about this. And then last night, same deal. She just, she was in trouble. And she could not wipe the smile off her face. Mm -hmm. She wasn't trying to be rude or ridiculous. She wasn't. She just sat there and had the small, a small of a smile that she could. But it was still smiles like, I don't even know what to do right now. Just. The thing, though, that's so different in the two of you is you're taking care of yourself and Jeff's trying to take care of everybody. There's there's an independent stance that nines don't have. <laughs> no, they do not. And it's because of how they see. Yeah. It's because of how they see. Okay. Um, I want to talk about something that I want to talk about two things right now. First of all, um, in knowing you and in our professional relationship, I discovered that in your nineness, you will absolutely do the right thing, regardless of what it costs you. And you will absolutely try to do the right thing for everybody. 
we have a little bit of history with that. And Joe uh, was so aware of uh, the integrity that you have. And then Joe and I had a long discussion about how many nines we know who have a lot of integrity. And I think it comes back to the burden of seeing two sides to everything, literally everything. Would you say that's true? Well, I um, haven't connected integrity to that, uh, seeing two sides. I I would like to believe you're right, Suzanne. I, uh, that's, uh, that's a bit of a new notion to me. Um, so I think in dealing with, with other human persons with integrity, it is incumbent upon us to try to, to understand them uh, and try to listen. And so you, you may be right, but that's a, that's again, as you often do, you, you connect dots for me that aren't necessarily dots that I've connected before. I definitely feel a burden of seeing, you know, those both sides and of being that bridge. I, I feel the, I feel the weight of that. Um, but it's connection to integrity. I, I guess I'll trust you that there is a connection. Please do. I wonder from the outside looking in it's because nines aren't volume shooters when it comes to stance taking. Yeah. Let me be real quick. The first thing that went through my head was, uh, the emails, uh, we all have integrity. Nines don't have a monopoly on integrity. <laughs> Got it. And so, yes, to the other eight numbers. Yes. All Everybody are has capa- integrity. capable of integrity. Right. right. I think what. But the motivation for integrity for everybody will be different. And the living out integrity will look different. Because when nines do take a stand, you mm-hmm. talk about right action. When nines do, it's not, you know, there are people that take stands take a lot of stands throughout a day with all with integrity and we, you know, we just skim over them. Right. True. And then nines take a stance once a month, a, once a, a big week, stand, once you don't, a year. What, what, like, how often do you that, risk that Jeff? Yeah. What's that? Well, you got two conflicting things happening or three or five. Mm-hmm. How often do you just stand up and say, I'm standing here? Uh, I, I would say it's rare. Yeah, that's it. You rarely do it. Yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit. One of the greatest compliments and gifts I've ever received was you asking me to write the foreword for The Language of the Soul. I reread it recently because I've connected to it in so many ways. And the reason I keep talking about your orientation to time being the past is because I'm convinced that the language of the soul written by you is a roadmap for forgiveness. Does that ring true? A roadmap for forgiveness, you said? Yep. Well, I think being in touch with our own longings and tending to them. Ronald Rollheiser, in his book, A Holy Longing, talks about what we do with the pain and the hope or the pain and the joy of our longings, that is our spirituality. So to the extent that we are mindful of our longings, we are attending to them and we are inviting 
God's presence in the midst of the longing, not necessarily God satisfying all of these deep longings, but inviting God's presence. Um, I think that it does it does put us in a place where uh, forgiveness, uh, receiving forgiveness, offering forgiveness, um, forgiving ourselves mm -hmm. is possible. So the chapter on the longing for, for forgiveness talks about all three of those dimensions, the forgiveness of God, forgiving other people and receiving their forgiveness and then forgiving ourselves. So um, I think that it has been a roadmap for me. Mm -hmm. uh, being attentive to those longings has been a roadmap for forgiveness in each of those dimensions. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, I asked Joe what he thought about it and he said, that from his perspective in reading another person who sees the world the way he does, that it's, uh, he has it too, he says, those same longings. And he's, his language was, there are places that mark my lack of peace in my history. And I, the lack of peace came with me. And mm. it will be with me until I can revisit those stories about my life and find peace with them. And much of your work in this book is finding peace with things that have already happened yep. that you didn't quite have resolved in all of the ways that you would like to resolve that. Yeah. I'm going to teach it to people whose orientation to time is not the past suggesting that if you keep yourself busy in the present moment or looking to the future, unaware that you have unresolved moments where you still lack peace, it's with you whether you can acknowledge it or not. Absolutely. And then that's a reason for balance between orientation to past, present, and future. Okay, I'd love for you to talk about all of that. Oh, my well, um, it, I, I love your observation, which I know you have in your teaching about nines in general, but specifically to this book that, you know, you see that orientation to the past coming out. I think that um, one of those unresolved things that you you may be referring to is actually with my uh, father, who's now deceased, and this book probably couldn't couldn't have been written uh, if he were still living. But even, even though it was written after he passed away, there, there are other um, parts of my family, you know, uh, my siblings, my mom, you know, I was, I was very uh, cognizant of, it's not a, a deep tell all of all of the broken places with my dad, but it's, it's veiled, but it's there. I was I was mindful, um, even as I wrote about the past in that veiled way, that my present and my future were was with my other siblings and my mom and the family system as a whole. And so, you know, trying to be trying to be wise in how I wrote about the past. But um definitely, I mean, the whole thing is it's really a collection of stories stories born out of the past and then um what what is happening in the present 
and what I hope for the future, the, the last chapter along for heaven, you know, does cast a, a vision for um, for the someday, the someday for uh, people in places like Gaza and Palestine and Israel, you know, the someday for um, the the migrants here in Chicago and, and in New York City and other places, you know. So there is a, a future dimension, but I love what you have picked up, and we've not had a chance to talk about that, of how the, the rootedness in, in the past and history uh, filters through the whole book. And I'm, I'm working on a new project on reading as a spiritual discipline, and, and you're, you're already, you've got my brain working of the ways in which I'm also telling stories about the past in there. So maybe it's just something I can't not do. Right. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know that it is something you can't not do. So let me tell you what Joe calls all of what we've just talked about. He has often said that he has regret, regret about important things. And, and I am trying to get him to change the language to a lack of peace. Okay. Because um, carrying regrets is really burdensome. And nines already too easily see themselves as wrong. So I have a question for you. Do you think that you take the blame for things that you don't really feel should be on you in order to end conflict in real time? I think in my unredeemed nineness of the past, the answer would be yes. I think that I have a an incredible wife of 40 years who has helped me um, and a counselor who has been a regular part of my life for, um, for a good period of time that have gotten me to the point where I would answer no today. But I am not a stranger to what you're saying. Um, and I think long before I knew any Enneagram language, um, I was aware of the need to redeem that part of who I was. And um, and then I think as as I did become more aware, as you and I and Joe had <clears throat> had good talks, and I learned from you both. I, you know, I was definitely motivated to continue that redemptive work. So I'm not a stranger to it. I would say it's not a part of my present to any large extent. Um, you know, if it if it creeps its head back up, I, you know, I I tend to whack it down. I I see it. I know what it I know what it signals, and I know what a dangerous um, road that is. Mm-hmm. So I that's what I believe, and I hope I'm right. I, I bet you are. One of the things I teach is that nines are the easiest number to take advantage of. And that example is one of the ways that people take advantage of nines. It's like if I just stay, hold my ground, ultimately he or she will say, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. That's what it is. You're right. And I I really, and I'm sure Cindy does the same thing with you. I really work with Joe on, I want to know what you want. Yep. I don't want you to merge with me. I want to know what you want. 
And yes. it is fascinating to other numbers that that's so difficult for nines. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you're right. She has done that for me. I mean, on simple things like, where do you want to go out to dinner tonight? Right. Please tell me. Right. <laughs> um, to the larger, you know, what what are you thinking vocationally or you know what how how are you feeling and what are you wanting to do with you know with your extended family um or you know a job change or whatever so from from very small to very large she's a very been a very helpful person to uh, identify and be able to articulate for her what what do you want what do you think? What What are you feeling? Okay, I have another thing to talk to the two of you about in terms of, now you've got me thinking about sevens and nines being alike. Both of you are stubborn. Sevens are very stubborn, and nines are really stubborn. Are you intentionally stubborn, or are you defensively stubborn? Twos aren't the least stubborn people, for the record, <laughs> while we're just, <clears throat> while we're all talking about each other. Well, you know, I, I thought I'd take over the interviewing part there for a minute. I I am growing so curious about stubbornness. And I think it's because my awareness of the duality that surrounds all of us, all of the duality. Um, I can't tell if people are really standing up for what they believe in or if they've taken a stand and they're just stubbornly holding to that and unwilling to move. Joel, I'll let you handle that if you can. (laughs) My comment isn't a positive reflection on how I see our society. You know, if uh, Richard Rohr calls opinions underdeveloped thinking, Mm -hmm. I'm going to put the burden on him then. Okay. He can carry it. In that I think when it comes to duality and non-duality and important things in today's society. I don't think most of us are inclined to want to, to want to think to want, yeah, to think period, Mm -hmm. to want to explore different possibilities Mm -hmm. to want to do, you know, there's a reason why when we're talking about the spiritual world, the work, Mm -hmm. there's also in everything else, the work. Right. And what a gift we have that we can vote. And how many people do the work of voting responsibility, right. responsibly? Right. right. Then you can list a, a, a ton of other things yeah. in that area. So uh, as far as stubbornness goes, like I think that the people that are the healthiest people that I see and want to listen to are people that, one, just ask questions instead of give statements and are open to change. Like, you know, no one's allowed to we had a thing recently when we talked about Anagram teaching um, that we won't get into specifics specifics of right now. I was like, you know, that's a that's a complete one eighty of what you've been teaching right. about this right. number. Right. Right. And you're like, yeah. And I knew th- I knew you would say yeah. I, sure, I was I, wrong. And it's like that. That's why you're a person to learn from, mm. not yeah. someone who's just like, nope. I've been teaching this for thirty for, years, and I'm right. And I, and this is what's happening. Yeah. And I'm not right about everything, but Jeff is a nine. So, I, <laughs> so I think there's that. But but Jeff, do you know that the most stubborn number on the enneagram is nines? I did. I didn't. Um, I'm sure that I've encountered it on the pages of your 
yes, of you your have. books. I, I, pro- I probably, but I probably wanted to gloss over and think, uh, no, Suzanne's wrong about that. Yeah. I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take that from her <laughs> uh, because I don't, I don't, I, I tend to not think of myself that way. But, um, you know, I, I think that stubbornness perhaps masked as acquiescence. Um, or, you know, stubbornness masked as adaptability or something like that, that there, you know, it's, you're probably on target, but I think it comes out looking a little different than I think of as stubborn, which is, you know, putting my foot down and saying, I am not going to do that. Yeah. Um, in terms of the duality in our culture and our politics and all of that, I, whether it's stubbornness, I, I I tend to think it's more laziness that they're what Joel is saying about people not desiring to think for themselves. They want someone else to tell them, you know, what do I think about this issue? What do I think about that? They don't want to explore. They're not curious. I was just rereading my friend Casey Hagrid's uh, book on curiosity yeah. as I've been writing a chapter um and it's it's just beautiful. I, I think it's a lack of curiosity, a lack of intentionality about thinking um, and just just kind of accepting, uh, not just politically, but accepting party lines um, uh, that others, you know, put forth and say this is this is the way it is. So is it stubbornness? I don't know. I, I tend to think it's more laziness and, and a lack of intentionality. Um, on the part of of people that leads us to where we are with these incredible, incredible uh, hostile and, you know, even sometimes uh, vicious kinds of things going on. Um, it just it just makes me sad. Um, so I I never thought I'd long for the days of the days of yore, the days of, mm. of uh, the 60s, 70s, and, and 80s, you know, and some of the leaders we had at the time. But here I am, you know, wishing wishing for uh, more civility. One of my favorite books is by Richard Mao called Uncommon Decency. If if your listeners didn't read anything else, if, uh, if they re- read Uncommon Decency, it's, you know, how can we bring back civility in an uncivil world? You know, and, and why is that important? It's a it's an old book, but it's never been more important than today. That's how you know it's good. Uh, we're up against it a little bit time wise, and so I want to ask two. I want to ask question, say a thing, and then let you all finish it up. Uh, first is you know we talked about the Rangers. This has been killing me for the past seventy five minutes. We talked about the Rangers. There's a bat in the background. It, we, oh yeah! What, what what we got there? I just need to know. That is the Major League Baseball Hall of Famer Andre Dawson. He played for the Expos, the Boston Red Sox, and the Chicago Cubs. Yeah. And he published a book, his memoir called Hawk, and uh, that's an autographed uh, bat from Andre Dawson. That's big for me to have that information. <laughs> <laughs> Was it one of the chapters called, and I'm sorry for not knowing this exactly. Do you say that one of the chapters was called the longing for forgiveness? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I was thinking while you're talking about orientation time, I was like, what a, a, an orientation time being the past being a longing for forgiveness. The thought that came into my head 
when I think about the past, I don't regret what was, but I do regret what could have been. Oh, that's very interesting. And I feel like what you've talked to, that nines regret what was. There is a big difference there. And so that's the thing that has been on my mind, the bat and that question for the best. Yeah. Well, I, I think you probably are right, Joel. Uh, at least that's more front of the mind is what was, you know, what was done um, is probably the orientation. Yes. But either way, the, the path of forgiveness, I think is similar and uh, just as important regardless of which of the orientations that one is looking at. Oh yeah. hundred percent. How has reading formed how you see? There's a line in the film Shadowlands. It's a, the story of C.S. Lewis and, and Joy Davidman and their relationship. And it's really apocryphal what Anthony Hopkins says to the student Chadwick in the tutoring room in that film. He he never wrote these words, but I, I loved what C.S. Lewis said to Chadwick when he, he said, we read to know we are not alone. Mm. Do you agree with that? And Chadwick said, I never thought of it that way, sir. And Lewis said, or Anthony Hopkins, as Lewis said, no, nor did I. Uh, that's not in any of, of Lewis's books. It's on postcards and mugs and and greeting cards. Um, but uh, he didn't say those exact words. But I think that sentiment is correct. So the the film writer of, of that or the screenwriter uh, I think was on to something so for me reading and why I'm working on this new project reading as a spiritual discipline uh, reading is a part of um, how I know what I believe uh, it's a part of how I know what my questions are it's a part of how I understand how others see the world so the people on the other side of those bridges um, that we've talked about, mm -hmm. I think uh, in the absence of reading, it is very difficult, though not impossible. I think there are other ways we can do this uh, to, for us to understand uh, the points of view of other people. But I think it's one of the best ways. I think travel is another way. Um, I I think just cultivating relationships and community is another. Um, but for me, reading has been, uh, I did not grow up as a reader. It really happened in my late teens and early 20s. Uh, my wife is a voracious reader. It's something we do together um, every night. Every night we read together. Separate books, but we're always reading together. It's what I have devoted now over 40 years to is is trying to help connect um, writers and readers. Uh, and I, I can't think of a better thing uh, to be about. So those are some of my thoughts about reading and my life as a reader. Happy to have a follow-up. The thing I say is if I'm not reading, I don't have anything to say. Mm -hmm. 
and I would like to think about um, a, a great human and author that you published at IVP and Richard Foster. He said, I think probably 25 or more years ago, the new tools of the devil are muchness and manyness and noise and crowds and hurry. And I don't particularly want to talk about the devil and theology around that because I don't know enough and I don't really have anything to say about that. But what I do think is that noise and crowds and hurry and muchness and manyness are destroying a common belief system that we've worked to have. Right. And a big piece of that is because those things have replaced reading or listening or even, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful for cop for podcasts because people are willing to listen to podcasts and it, it is reading sort of it's, it's a, it's not because you don't get to think things through, but it is in the way that things are presented that maybe you haven't thought about before. My final question is if you could teach people how you see, how could you say to me, if I, if I came to you and said, I want to look at things and see two sides or three sides or five sides, can you teach me how to do that? What would your response be? Ask questions, be curious, uh, leave room for really pregnant pauses when you do ask another questions. Um, don't fill the space quickly. Give people time to collect their thoughts. Um, I think um, curiosity and also, as as I was mentioning a moment ago, I think, well, I think deep reading is a part of the antidote to what you just described, Suzanne, as ailing our society, because it it forces you to stop. It forces you to slow down. the The way the brain works when you're reading, it's a, it's it's quite a, a amazing. Um, there's all kinds of neuroscience going on right now and lots of books that have come out more that are going to come out about um, the value of deep reading um, on on the human brain but but yeah I, I think just being curious not not being prying or you know just but in the context of you know conversations that we have with other people be quick to ask them about themselves about how they view the world how they uh, how they have experienced being uh who they are in the world and uh and leaving a pregnant pause uh don't fill the space and and reading uh diverse sources do not be afraid of reading uh diverse perspectives even if you you close the book and you are, you know, you're not persuaded, uh, you've been served by gaining the exposure to how another person sees the world and sees, um, you know, the the answers to to conundrums in this world. So those those are top of the mind for me, and uh, I. 
you know, I, I think as an, perhaps as a nine, I able to do that without it seeming unnatural. Um, I hope that's true of me. I think it is. But um, those are some of my thoughts. It's interesting to me that curiosity comes up so much because um, we start there. Little kids start with why. Why, 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 why do we have to do that? Why would you say that? Why did she do that? Why did he do that? Why do I have to go to bed? Do we beat it out of him? <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly that's, what that's happens. A, that's the yeah. answer, exactly. And it's because I said so. Or because I'm older or because I'm the parent. Oh, my God. I don't know. Just go lay down. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in the thick of it if you haven't picked up on that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I hear what you're saying. I feel called out, and I'll try to do better. And... <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure we need to squelch curiosity. Jeff, our time is uh, over for everybody to get to listen in. Our time together in friendship is is just rolling along. I love I love this book, The Language of the Soul, and I want everybody to read it. And I'm excited that you're writing a new book. And it sounds like it's very timely in terms of people really beginning to look at reading as a spiritual practice or a spiritual discipline yeah. because it needs to be and has to be. And I don't know how we're going to get people to slow down. And I, well, I, I just don't know how. All right, let's go so. back to how wonderful and lovely the language of the soul is. And I hope everybody reads it and I'm excited. There's a new book and um, I have no doubt that you are, a bridge builder and it is uh, always a privilege to be with you because you exude peace whether you feel it or not thank you both for having me it's been great to be with you thank you thank you so much <laughs>